This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. Here we are in 1956, the 22nd year of the Academy Award for Best Song. The Academy has made it very clear in its rules that songs must be first recorded for use in a motion picture before it is made commercially available, which leaves the door open for so-called trunk songs to qualify for an award. That will be the case for one of the songs nominated in 1956, which we will talk about now to kick off our discussion of the five nominees. Remember that there are going to be some major plot points discussed in this episode. Ray Evans and Jay Livingston had a lot of success writing songs that fit the performers perfectly, with music and lyrics that made those songs so memorable. That was true again in 1956, when their contract with Paramount brought them into the Alfred Hitchcock universe for the thriller The Man Who Knew Too Much. The song plays in the film as an integral part of the story about an American family that is drawn into an assassination plot in Morocco and later in London. One night at their hotel in Marrakesh, Doris Day's character Joe is putting her son, Hank, to bed at night. Joe was an accomplished singer before marrying James Stewart's doctor, Ben, and it seems like the nightly custom is for her and her son to sing. The two of them sing, Que sera, sera, which means whatever will be, will be. Hank leads the performance of the song, asking her mother in melodic rhyme what the future holds for him. Joe's response is that she doesn't know, that the future's not ours to see. It's a fun performance, done without musical accompaniment, and all indications are it's done live on set. What will be, will be When I was just a little boy I asked my mother What will I be? I'm like a fine doctor Will I be handsome? Will I be rich? Here's what she said to me Que sera, sera Whatever will be will be the future's not ours to see que sera sera what will be will be second verse when When i was was just a child in school i asked my teacher what should i try catch should i paint pictures (laughs) Should I sing songs? This was her wise reply. Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Que sera, sera. Oops. (laughs) What will be, will be. May I have this next dance? Yes. All right. Down, 
dum da dum da 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 Oh, you're divine. Academy rules stipulated that the song feature both music and lyrics, but don't worry, we will hear another performance of the song that has music. The next day, Hank is kidnapped by a British couple who figure very prominently in the plot to murder the prime minister of a fictional country. Joe and Ben spend the bulk of the film looking for their son, and after stopping the assassination, go to the prime minister's country's embassy, believing Hank to be held there. While there, Joe is asked to sing, and in an attempt to draw out Hank, she sings their song quite loudly. But since it's Doris Day, it's still very much in tune. She sings loud in order to make herself heard throughout the embassy, hoping Hank will hear and respond. The song's volume gets quieter to us as the camera works its way through the halls of the embassy to the room where Hank is being held. Under the eye of the British woman who kidnapped him, Hank hears his mother. The British woman is having a change of heart, hence her encouragement to Hank. The song belongs completely to Doris Day now, and she sings two new verses that present her as an adult, wondering about her life to her sweetheart, and having kids now asking her about their futures. When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Here's what she said to me. Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Que sera, sera. What will be, will be. When I was just a child in school, I asked my teacher, what should I try? Should I paint pictures? Should I sing songs? This was her wise reply. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. When I grew up and fell in love, I asked my sweetheart, what lies ahead? Will we have rainbows day after day? Here's what my sweetheart said. that song? I guess so. Then go on, whistle it. 
whistle it as loud as you can. lies ahead will we have rainbows day after day here's what my sweetheart said ever will be will be the future's not ours to see que sera sera what will be will be now I have children of my own. They ask their mother, what will I be? Will I be handsome? Will I be rich? I tell them tenderly. Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Que sera, sera. What will be, will be. Jay Livingston didn't write the song specifically for the man who knew too much. Livingston was watching the film The Barefoot Contessa back in 1954 and noted the phrase the character played by Rosanna Brazzi said, Que sera, sera. Here's the thing. Que sera, sera is not an Italian phrase. If it were in Italian, the phrase would have been Che sara, sara. Livingston took those words and recalibrated them to what he thought was the grammatically correct Spanish phrase, Que sera, sera. But that is also incorrect. In Spanish, it would be Lo que sera, sera. Livingston took some songwriting liberties, blended a few Romance languages together, and enticed Evans to crank out a song for use at a later date. They must have known that simply writing the song and having someone record it first, without it being attached to a movie, would make it ineligible for an Oscar. The song wasn't stuffed in proverbial mothballs for very long. Two weeks after seeing The Barefoot Contessa, after Doris Day had been hired to star in The Man Who Knew Too Much, Alfred Hitchcock was pressured by Paramount to make Joe a singer and to have a new song written for her. Hitchcock was one of the few directors who had resisted the use of songs in non-musical films, and was even hesitant at times to have a score in his movies. Since he could not walk off the film because he was under contract, Hitchcock asked the studio's top songwriters, Livingston and Evans, to write something that would be sung by Joe in a foreign country with some non-English words and sung to her son. Ray and Jay didn't tell Hitchcock they already had a song. They spent a couple of weeks pretending to agonize over the song, then presented him with Que Sera Sera. Hitchcock loved the song, and since it was so important to the plot, Ray and Jay knew Hitchcock couldn't change his mind and take it out. Doris Day's performance of the song became another big hit for her, even though she didn't think it would sell more than a couple of copies. It actually sold a million-plus records and hit number three on the Billboard charts. Day couldn't escape the song for the rest of her career, singing it in other movies and in concerts. There's a newspaper review of one of her concerts in 1958 featuring the audience drowning out Day when she gets to the chorus of Que Sera Sera. Though The Man Who Knew Too Much was definitely not a comedy, 
It was a lighter film than Julie, Doris Day's second screen appearance of 1956, featuring her second performance of an Oscar-nominated song that year. Yes, Doris Day sings the song Julie, and she plays Julie in the movie Julie. The song was written by first-time nominees Leith Stevens and Tom Adair. Stevens had been spending most of his career as a concert pianist, orchestra leader, and music arranger for CBS Radio. He had written the scores for 19 films before having a sort of breakout with the 1953 film The Wild One, featuring Marlon Brando playing a rebellious biker. Stevens was never given the opportunity to break into the bigger films in Hollywood, scoring mostly B-movies, or movies that might have been B-movies if not for the actors involved. Julie is one of those movies. It's a somewhat fantastical story about a former airline stewardess, Julie, who is tasked with landing a commercial airplane after her second husband shoots the pilot of that plane. Tom Adair was part of the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra roster in the early 1940s, which is where Frank Sinatra got his start as a singer. When Astaire was ready to break away and start a solo career, Adair made the jump too and wrote The Night We Called It A Day for Sinatra, his first song as a solo artist. It didn't do well, which didn't help Adair's future. If it had been a success, he might have been the lyricist in residence for Sinatra instead of Sammy Kahn. Adair was relegated to radio, where he made the most of it with new music almost every week on the Auto Light radio show, while Sinatra was churning out hits and winning an Oscar. Julie was Adair's first Hollywood job. The title song by Adair and Stevens highlights the tone of the film. We hear a male voice sing out Julie, and Doris Day sings about trying to escape this man who has a tender kiss and a voice that promises ecstasy. On screen, we see her running away from that man, played by Frenchman Louis Jordan, who has been playing more lovable characters in Hollywood movies. But here, there is no redemption for him as Julie's murderous second husband. It's the voice of my one love And it promises ecstasy
Unlike K Sera Sera, Doris Day didn't record Julie for commercial sale. With the film being completed on a budget of less than $800,000, there was probably no money allocated for recording the song other than putting it in the opening credits to give the film some hope of an Oscar nomination. It certainly got that thanks to Day's performance of the song. Andrew Stone's screenplay also earned an Oscar nomination. The next nominated song comes from a movie that received six Oscar nominations, including Best Picture. It's Friendly Persuasion, and the title song, with a subtitle, The I Love, gave Dimitri Tiomkin and Paul Francis Webster another chance at Oscar glory. Both of them had earned their Oscars working with others, Tiomkin with Ned Washington and Webster with Sammy Fain. Tiomkin and Washington wrote the title song for Strange Lady in Town in 1955, but since Tiomkin's other score assignments in 1955 and 1956 didn't come with the request for a title song, Washington stayed busy with others in that time. I'm not sure why Tiomkin didn't ask Washington to help him write the title song for Friendly Persuasion. It could be that Washington was too busy with work on the songs for two other 1956 movies, The Maverick Queen and Miracle in the Rain. Sammy Fain and Paul Francis Webster wrote a bunch of songs for the final Martin and Lewis movie in 1956, Hollywood or Bust, so that partnership was going strong. The movie follows the lives of a Quaker family in southern Indiana in 1862 at the height of the Civil War. Because Quakers are a peace-loving community, the family has to come to terms with the war that is slowly closing in on them. That's especially true for the eldest son, Josh, played by Anthony Perkins in an Oscar-nominated role. The movie does not rely too heavily on any romantic elements, though there is a subplot involving the family's daughter falling in love with a Union soldier who is a longtime family friend. But the lack of a strong love story didn't stop Tiomkin and Webster from fashioning a love song that puts itself squarely in the world of the Quakers. Not only does it use the word the often, T-H-E-E, which the Quakers use in place of you, but Webster mentions the green meadows, apple trees, and bonnets we see in the movie. Strong as the oak for the 
Pat Boone singing The I Love. At the time, Boone was just 22 years old and in his second year as a professional singer. In 1956, Boone and his wife Shirley gave birth to their third daughter. That girl, Debbie, would go on to become one of the most famous singers of the 1970s and 1980s, and as a bit of foreshadowing, would eventually join her father as the singer of an Oscar-nominated song or two. Pat Boone made Fats Domino's song, Ain't That a Shame, a top 10 hit in 1955, starting a successful chapter re-recording songs made popular by black singers such as Nat King Cole and Little Richard. Recording The I Love was the first time he originated a song, and it gave him another 12 weeks in the Billboard Top 10 for 1956. There's a 30-second performance of The I Love at the end of the movie, in which everyone is happy on a Sunday morning on the way to a Quaker meeting. There is a bit of love in the air as we see the daughter getting into a carriage with the Union soldier, and presumably they have married or are about to be married. I can't imagine an unmarried Quaker girl getting into the carriage of an unmarried man in the 1860s. Pat Boone is joined by a chorus who had also sung a brief version of the song in the film. Pleasures me in a hundred ways. Put on your bonnet, your cape, and your glove, and come with me. Friendly Persuasion got a nomination for Best Picture and earned about $5 million at the box office. Gary Cooper blended aspects of his Oscar-winning roles in Sergeant York and High Noon to give a performance that he seemingly didn't want to do and disowned after he saw the finished product. But that wasn't the biggest headline maker for the movie. When the movie played in theaters in its first run, the opening credits did not list a screenwriter. That's because Michael Wilson, the man who wrote the script, was blacklisted in Hollywood for not testifying before the House Un-American Activities Committee. Screenwriters who were blacklisted had to offer scripts under a pseudonym, as Dalton Trumbo did multiple times, or they had their names erased from the film. Wilson's name was not only removed from the screen credits, he also had his name removed as an official nominee when his screenplay became an Academy Award nominee. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, being reactive to the furor over communists in Hollywood, quickly made a rule saying that anyone who refused to testify for the House Committee were not eligible for an award. 
This rule was made in early February 1957, one week before the nominations were announced. Now, why did they do this? It's likely the Board of Governors knew that Michael Wilson was headed toward a nomination and the Academy wanted to save face. The Writers Guild protested this by giving Wilson the Guild Award for Best Written Drama. Cole Porter wasn't on the Hollywood blacklist, but he was having a hard time finding success with his songs that didn't appear in Broadway musicals. In the 13 years since last earning an Oscar nomination, Porter had found success on Broadway with Kiss Me Kate and Can Can, but he couldn't get one hit record out of his Hollywood ventures. When MGM offered Porter $250,000 to write nine songs for High Society, the musical adaptation of the Philadelphia story, Porter found himself inspired by writing for Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra, two of the most popular singers of the 1950s. Porter's jazz influence fit in greatly with Sinatra and with Louis Armstrong, who acts as sort of a narrator in between some trumpet playing. But it was one of the songs performed by Crosby, True Love, that got the Oscar nomination. Crosby and Sinatra are in love with Tracy, played by Grace Kelly, in her final film appearance before she married Prince Rainier of Monaco. Crosby's character, a singer named C.K., was married to Tracy and is trying to win her back. On the day before her wedding to another man, C.K. stops by to give Tracy a wedding present. It's a model version of the sailboat they were on during their honeymoon. That boat was called the True Love, and we get a flashback of that glorious day when Tracy and C.K. were newlyweds. On a starry night, C.K. takes a squeeze box and performs True Love, singing of the happiness the two of them feel. Their guardian angel has nothing to do for them except offering the gift of true love. Suntan wind blown Honeymooners at last alone Feeling far above power Oh, how we are While I give to you And you give to me True love True love So on and on It'll a guardian angel on high with nothing to do but to give to you and to give to me love forever For you and I have a guardian angel on high 
with nothing to do but to give to you and to give to me love forever true love forever true early in his career when johnny burke was his principal lyricist Crosby made a proclamation that the word love will never appear in any of his love songs. That resulted in a lot of great wordplay through the 1940s, but I suppose that edict went out the window when Burke and Crosby went their separate ways. True Love is a simple song, without much musical or lyrical flourish. The scene in which it appears helps the audience understand the previous relationship between C.K. and Tracy, but it and the other songs in the film don't need to happen. Though Cole Porter had done well with integrating songs into the plot for his Broadway shows, he didn't seem to do well with high society. True Love was the only song to make a dent in commercial record sales, reaching number five on the Billboard charts and keeping Crosby on the radio for five months with just this one song. This would be one of Porter's most popular film songs, right up there with I've Got You Under My Skin. A music publisher had written to Porter with praise for the song, calling it, quote, a simple, beautiful, tasteful composition worthy of Franz Schubert, end quote. Sammy Kahn had been a hit with the Academy since he first arrived in Hollywood, and that continued in 1956 with the title song for the non-musical drama Ridden on the Wind. The song featured music by Victor Young, who was mostly a film composer but had amassed two previous Oscar nominations for writing songs. One of them was Love Letters, the song that got a nomination despite never appearing in the film of the same name. Young was one of the most nominated composers of the era, gaining 19 score nominations over 18 years. In addition to helping Sammy Kahn write the song Ridden on the Wind, he was responsible for the score to Around the World in 80 Days and five other films released in 1956. The song Ridden on the Wind just had to use the film's title, which was adapted from the novel Written on the Wind by Robert Wilder. It's a melodrama in every sense of the word, with a lot of overacting that made director Douglas Sirk well-known at the time. The song sort of ties into the film, though it's probably too tender of a love song to fit the ragged edges of the plot involving four people playing games in order to win the hearts of the ones they love. It plays over the opening credits when we see a drunk Robert Stack arriving at his family's mansion one night. The look on everyone's face when he arrives doesn't match the love song about unrequited love, but it will become the love theme of Rock Hudson's character, Mitch, and Lauren Bacall's character, Lucy. lover's kiss is written on the wind a night of stolen bliss 
Frank Skinner wrote the score for the film, using Victor Young's melody several times when Mitch and Lucy are talking. The melody gets a large rendition at the end when Mitch and Lucy drive off together, finally able to love each other after a year of torment and shame. Victor Young died of a cerebral hemorrhage on November 10, 1956, just six weeks before the film Written on the Wind made its American theatrical debut, and three months before his name was listed twice as an Oscar nominee, one for writing the song Written on the Wind, and another for the score to the Best Picture nominated Around the World in 80 Days. He was only 57 years old. Khan was just 43 years old which might be surprising given his longevity as a popular songwriter and prolific output in a span of 20 years. So we have five solid songs nominated for 1956, but as was the case in 1955 with Rock Around the Clock, we had a song from a new rock and roll artist that was taking movie theaters and record stores by storm. The singer was Elvis Presley, and the song was Love Me Tender. The song had been written for Elvis's debut film, originally called The Reno Brothers. But when the song became a big hit in the month before the film's release, 20th Century Fox quickly changed the title, knowing interest in the film would be higher with the song title attached to it. It certainly helped, since Elvis Presley wasn't top-billed on this film, though he's the one that would gain superstar status 
as the film was unspooling in theaters. The film, Love Me Tender, tells the story of the real-life Reno brothers, who fought in the Confederate Army during the Civil War. It's not known if Presley's character Clint was a singer, but he was played by Elvis Presley, so he had to sing three songs. One of them is Love Me Tender, which he sings to his mother and new bride, two different people, in one day. Love me tender, love me sweet, never let me go. You have made my life complete, and I love you so. Love me tender, love me true, all my dreams fulfill. For my darling, I love you. And I always will. When the film came out, Elvis Presley had just released his debut album, which was selling so fast, record stores could barely keep up. Blue Suede Shoes, one of Elvis's signature songs, was on that album and sold more than one million copies as a single. But back to Love Me Tender. The song was written for the movie, as I said, which on the surface would make it eligible for an Academy Award. The lyrics by Ken Darby were original, but the melody was taken from a Civil War song called Aura Lee. When the blackbird in the spring on the willow tree He sat and rocked I heard him sing Singing orally Orally, orally Made of golden hair Sunshine came along with thee Swallows in the air. Since the film was set in post-Civil War times, it's logical that Love Me Tender would borrow that melody. Perhaps Clint had fashioned a new song out of Aura Lee. No matter how much it related to the setting of the film, because the melody was close to 100 years old, the song was not completely original, and thus Elvis Presley, as one of the songwriters, was not going to get an Academy Award nomination in his debut year. But no matter. Love Me Tender was Elvis Presley's fourth number one song of 1956, after Heartbreak Hotel, I Want You, I Need You, I Love You, and Hound Dog. Elvis was having the kind of breakout debut that Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, Doris Day, and others could only dream of having. And... Presley was the sole driving force in proving that rock and roll was a viable music genre, and his success with Love Me Tender, the film, and the song, showed that Rock Around the Clock and its influence on the film was not a fluke. Rock and roll and the movies were bound to become partners. But first, the business of naming the Academy Award winner for Best Song of 1956 needed to be handled. Two of the five songs had their original performers singing on the telecast. 
Bing Crosby decided he would rather pre-record his performance of True Love instead of sing it live. And the four aces were in Hollywood to sing Written on the Wind after a great commercial recording. Doris Day didn't show up to sing her two nominated songs, with former Best Actress nominee Dorothy Dandridge singing Julie, and Goji Grant, who was about to have a big number one hit with The Wayward Wind, sang Que Sera Sera. Tommy Sands, who was three years younger than Pat Boone at 19 years old, sang the Quakerized lyrics of The I Love at the ceremony. Sands had just made it big with the number two hit, Teenage Crush, the month before the Academy Awards, so his appearance was sure to draw in the teenage crowd. All of the winners were announced by some of the acting nominees in attendance, whether at the Hollywood Gathering or at the simulcast event in New York City at NBC Century Theater. Mickey Rooney was in Hollywood and might have been the best choice of the acting nominees to announce the song winner since he had sung the nominated Our Love Affair and How About You in the 1940s. But in what the show organizers thought must have been a funny tie-in, they gave the five foot two Rooney the job of reading the winners of the short subject categories. That's a gag that the Academy will use for many, many years, giving either short people or children the short film presentation. Carol Baker, who was a Best Actress nominee for Baby Doll and never recognized as a singer, was the one to handle the Best Original Song Award, and she did it from New York. She didn't bother reading the nominations, presumably because the songs had been performed all evening. So she took the envelope from the accountant on stage and read that Jay Livingston and Ray Evans had won their third Oscars as the writers of K. Sarah Sarah. At the time, only Harry Warren had won three Oscars for songwriting, so Ray and Jay were in rare territory. They were also the rare songwriting team to have a long-standing contract with the studio, but that seemed to end in 1956 when Ray and Jay ventured beyond Paramount for their next songwriting gigs. In an interview conducted in 1987, Livingston recalled a time when he was visiting Salzburg, Austria, and heard a window washer singing Que Sera Sera. To hear someone in a foreign country singing one of his songs for Livingston was, quote, a bigger kick than money, end quote. True Love was Cole Porter's final Oscar nomination. He's going to write one more song score for the movies, and it will come in 1957 for Gene Kelly's final MGM film, Lay Girls. Critics liked the film, but they felt the songs were too Broadway and accused Porter of being lazy. The music branch of the Academy must have felt the same way since they're not going to give Porter a song nomination in 1957. But we'll learn more about the five songs that beat out Cole Porter's contributions on the next episode of the Best Song Podcast. Just remember, you can send me an email with questions or comments to jeffswim at aol.com, and I promise I'll read them all. Until next time, thanks for singing along. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.